This is the Reading Teacher's Lounge, where listeners can eavesdrop on professional conversations between elementary reading teachers. We're passionate about literacy and strive to find strategies to reach all learners. Shannon and Mary are neighbors who realized that they were literacy soul sisters at a dinner in their Atlanta neighborhood. Once they started chatting about reading, they haven't really stopped. Come join the conversation. Hello and welcome to the Reading Teacher's Lounge. Um, Today you are listening to episode eight of season five. And today we're gonna be talking about orthographic mapping. And we are so lucky to have such a great guest today. We have Anna Geiger joining us. You may know her as the measured mom. And also she has her own podcast too, Triple R Teaching, which also kind of dives into the science of reading. So Anna, thank you so much for joining us today. We're happy to have you. Thank you, I'm really happy to be here. Anna, tell us a little bit about yourself for the people that um, are listening that might not know you and tell us about your teaching experience and then the current work you're doing with literacy. Yeah, so I was a classroom teacher for about eight years and I earned my master's degree in curriculum and instruction. And then um, my last day of classroom teaching was the day my water broke on the way home for my oldest daughter. So she's in high school now and we have six children. So our our youngest is um, in first grade. And I was a balanced literacy teacher in the classroom um, when I taught my own kids to read before they went to kindergarten. And then through all these years, up until a few years ago, when I was teaching other teachers how to read on my website, The Measured Mom, and then my first version of my online course and some other things. And a few years ago, I listened to Emily Hanford's At a Loss for Words, and I wasn't convinced right away, but I knew I had to do some more digging. And that really just... um drove me into the science of reading and structured literacy. And now I've really updated my website and my course, completely redid the course and continue to talk about now structured literacy and how that aligns with the science of reading through my podcast and other things that I share. I'm so excited to have you today. Um, As the listeners know, because we often link um, to some of your resources and things like that. I've been following you for quite a while um, and I've been using a lot of your resources. Uh, And also this reading mama too um, is Becky. Mm -hmm. And I know that you guys work closely together too. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I sat in on a webinar that you had just hosted and um, I am just so impressed with um, this kind of a pivot, I suppose we could call it, that you both have kind of taken with your, um, you've always had high quality resources, especially for working with kids one-on-one and offering a ton of free resources too, especially for parents, I think that are really easy to just pick up. And I would often um, share your resources with my parents for just some little extra practice. So I really appreciate that. But I also have to tell you, when I was watching your webinar, it was just so refreshing the way that you are able to um, explain orthographic mapping and the brain processes and things like that. So it's really evident that you have done a lot of work um, yourself and sharing it with others. And that's the same kind of work that Shannon and I, um, you know, are really trying to do as well Is just when you learn um and you can share about a different way of of thinking and approaching things. Our goal is always to try to do things um, smarter, not harder. And I think that this approach, um, that uh, the not the approach, the the actual science of reading, and delivering that to teachers is really the core mission that there are 
that people are undertaking right now. So Shannon and I are on our journey of understanding the science of reading. Our listeners are on that journey. You're on that journey. And so we're just trying to bring in voices um, that are clear and concise. And that's definitely what um, I found with you and Becky. So thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for asking me. This is fun to talk about. Yeah, y'all both, um, I think, modeled like a, a humbled transparency when you had that big pivot. I remember watching you on social media during that time. And you just, you were brave enough to, you know, we kind of always say like, no better, do better. And you're brave enough to say, you know, <laughs> we've been a voice and we've been saying that we knew everything, but now we're saying we don't know everything <laughs> know. and we're learning. And that's, that, that is a really brave thing. You know, that is a hard thing to do. (laughs) And it modeled it for us that it was okay to say, you know, we were doing the best at the time, but now we're going to continue to learn. Yeah. Well, when you, when you've been saying, like, I had a blog post about three queuing years ago and I I started my website in 2013. So it's almost been 10 years, but right after that, like in 2014, someone wrote a comment that that was not backed by research. And I thought, what? I just learned this like five years ago in graduate school. This lady can't be right. And I, I just didn't, um, I did not latch onto that. It took me like five more years before I was really ready to listen. So I feel like I have a lot of undoing to do. And that's why I want to be honest about it with people. That's that's where we are too. Yep. Us too. And, and even, um, I feel like I kind of really started my process when I picked up David Kilpatrick's book (laughs) and I started Mm -hmm. learning about the processes of orthographic mapping, because even in my Gillingham training, I feel like I didn't quite understand all the brain science behind um, how children read. And so that's kind of the undertaking that I've been doing. So that's what I would love to kind of break down with you today is um, like, what is orthographic mapping to you? And then, you know, Shannon and I will jump in when we can, but um, let's, yeah. Give it to us, please. <laughs> okay. So I like to tell teachers that Orton or that orthographic mapping is the mental process by which we store words for immediate instant retrieval. I, that's probably almost directly from David Kilpatrick. Um, in other words, it's the process we used to we use to remember words. So it can be a little confusing when we see things on Instagram where people might say, time to do orthographic mapping. Let's pull out this activity. It's it's sometimes confused with phoneme grapheme mapping, which is a wonderful activity that can lead to orthographic mapping. But what we have to remember is that it's a mental process. It happens in a child's brain. We can't force it to happen, but we can give the proper instruction that will promote orthographic mapping. And I think when we understand how words are remembered, that changes a lot. It changes how we approach teaching of words and in particular changes what texts we use with beginning readers. So, you know, we talked about how for orthographic mapping to work, for you to remember words for the future, you have to have some basic foundational skills. I, I usually just um, narrow it down to phonemic awareness and phonic decoding, but for phonic decoding to happen, you have to have letter sound knowledge. You have to be really fast at it, not just you know C represents K, but also SH and, and all the other um, digraphs and things that we know. And also of course the alphabetic principle that a letter represents a sound. Um, but when we, when we think about that, I think, it, it was a hard. It was hard for me to understand orthographic mapping at first. It was just such a new idea. I don't think it's really all that complicated. But it took me a while. Um, I watched a lot of David Kilpatrick's webinars where he explained it over and over, and I read Equip for Reading Success at the beginning of that a lot until um, it started to make sense for me. I think um, the the reason I think at first why it's a little hard to grasp is because it feels very counterintuitive. 
Like it feels like we're just reading words by how they look because we recognize them right away. And I, I think I was just watching a webinar this morning. I was talking about if a word is orthographically mapped, it pops off the page, right? You can't help but read it. And we know that, like, if you see a sign, you can't just make yourself wait to read it. You've read it. When you see it, you've read it. And that's what we want for our kids too. But, you know, how does that happen? It's not because we have memorized lots of words. And I think it's, I think it's also good to be honest and that you can memorize the look of words. Um, you can do that. In fact, so for some kids that looks like it's working for a while um, because it can work for a while, but um, we know that adults know, like you said, like at least 30,000 up to 70,000 words instantly. So we can't, our brain does not have that capacity to memorize the look of all those words. So yes, we can teach a few words to memorize it first, just to get them going, like the, the word the and things like that. But that is not a long-term strategy for word learning. And another thing that I think is very interesting is that word learning is not a visual process, which is very interesting, except for learning letters. Other than that, it's not because we understand that orthographic mapping is a connection of sounds to letters. It's the bonding of those. And I forget the word we're using before we went live, but the, maybe that was the word, how you connect them together. And, and then we were mapping those letters in a particular order in our brain. And it's, I, I can go back a little bit and talk about how we know, one reason we know that we don't just memorize the look of words is that we can recognize words instantly, whether they're in different fonts, whether we do upper and lowercase mixed together. Um, you know, at first that might slow you down, but once you get used to it, you could read it just as quickly. So yeah, that's a, that's a basic um, introduction to orthographic mapping. Are, are there other things you want to talk about? No, that was beautiful. I I have forgotten because I've also shared this information with parents too. Explaining the process of orthographic mapping to parents, I think, is really challenging. It's hard to to undertake it as a teacher, um, where you already know what phonological awareness is, and you know. But but with orthographic right. mapping, I think really talking about how text does um, the font that you're reading doesn't really change um, how a student reads that word. That starts to really um, help them understand that it's not a visual process. And especially when we were first um, explaining dyslexia, you know, a very outdated myth is that all kids with dyslexia see their letters and words backwards or write their letters and words backwards. And there is a visual component to it but it is more of a process that you need to make more efficient within the brain. And so when I teach my kids and when I talk to, to families, I like to describe orthographic mapping as looking at letter sequences and making meaning from the, the sounds yes. of, of those letter sequences in small chunks that we can put into different words. So even if you, a good example, I think, is if you were to do flashcards and you were to write... Um, uh, ed on a flashcard and you were to write it, you know, have another vowel, let's say short E, let's say um, R and D. Um, and you would have R and then ed, and you could put those together and that would be the word red. You could also do R, E, D, and you could put those together, but your brain would know that the E and the D are still the same. And so mixing those around, we could still change it around and we could do D, R, <laughs> it's mm -hmm. another way of doing it. We know that D and R is doctor. 
So we can take a string of familiar letters um, and make meaning from those. And that's really what the orthographic mapping is. Doing it fast means that the neurological pathways are moving really efficiently in your brain. And that's what we want to do. Sometimes kids with dyslexia, and I know I've mentioned this before, if you look at an fMRI, you'll see that many different areas of their brain are lighting up. But what we want to do is move those processes to the left side of the brain and make it more efficient so that they are analyzing the words, not looking at, at it as if it's a visual um, stimuli. So that might have been a little too technical, but but I think we're going to get into it a little bit more. I loved, um, yeah, especially how many words kids can make and build. That's a really mm -hmm. important concept to really dwell on. And also, you just gave me such a um, like a warm, fuzzy feeling because I also had to reread Kilpatrick again <laughs> and again and again just to like make meaning for myself because it was a hard concept to start to understand. Yeah. What. Um, and I was thinking back to our reading brain episode where we were mentioning that we've already, because we've been talking for many years before we've learned to read, we already have those connections between meaning and pronunciation in our brain. And so if we bypass that by just trying to teach, you know, a reader maybe to learn that the the letter C, which is sort of like a broken circle and the letter A, which is like a circle with a stick and the letter T, which looks like a cross is stands for cat and you're just trying to memorize that visual symbol for cat versus like a hieroglyphic for a cat or something you're bypassing the cat connection that this is related to how you say the meaning of cat and so then we're we're, we're trying to just connect the visual and the meaning connections of the brain and bypassing the pronunciation part of the brain and that really is going to slow down that efficiency because the orthographic mapping is the connection of all three of those pieces. Like you said, Anna, like the, the um, Aries calls it the fusion of written unit pronunciation and meaning. And we've already got the pronunciation and meaning units connected for many, many mm -hmm. words in our oral vocabulary once we start reading. And so if we could just attach the, um, the visuals to the connections of those speeches, that is why we have a phonetic alphabet because it is more efficient than trying to make unique visual symbols for 60,000 words. Yes, thank goodness we don't have to do that <laughs> or teach, the, teach them how to draw all those symbols. I think what you said about bypassing orthographic mapping is, is really powerful. And I, I always, whenever I give a short talk about the science of reading, I always talk about um, orthographic mapping, how the brain learns to read, and then the simple view and Scarborough's rope. Like those are my four big pieces. And I think orthographic mapping is so important to understand because the texts we choose can either promote or like you said, bypass orthographic mapping. So for years, I I thought that early readers should use level books, predictable books, where they could pretty much quote, read it without even looking at the words once they knew the pattern, because they sounded so fluent and they were quotes again, reading so quickly that they could tell me about the book. Whereas if they were just starting out and working through a decodable, it was very slow. It was hard to listen to. Um, they couldn't read fast enough to really at least at first, be able to tell me too much about it. So that felt to me like this isn't working. But now we understand that that's exactly what they have to do. They have to struggle through the words. They have to sweat through the words. And I know there's a concern then that reading isn't going to be fun. But I think 
there's so much to be said for them knowing they did it. Like they actually pulled the word off. They didn't need your help to get started with the book. They didn't need you to teach the pattern or teach the, the words they couldn't sound out so they could get going. They didn't need the pictures. They're really pulling the words off. And that's where that the joy comes when they're actually doing it. But when we try to bypass orthographic mapping and make them pretend like they're reading, which is really what it is for a lot of kids for those early books, we're really making it, unfortunately, where they're going to hit a wall eventually. Because like we said, um, you can only memorize so far. And if you don't have the phonics knowledge to work on those harder words, then you're going to get stuck when the pictures are taken away. And when you haven't heard the, haven't heard the word before, um, you can't work on those parts of the word um, because you just don't you wouldn't have the ability to do that. So just keeping in mind for people that orthographic mapping, um, we don't want to bypass it by choosing the wrong reading material. Or even it would be bypassing it if like, you know, a lot of well-meaning kindergarten teachers and pre-K teachers might say, I want your child to learn a hundred sight words this yeah. year. Please do all these sight word cards. And we're not encouraging the students to sound out those words because sounding out, well, first off, a lot of the sight, the sight words that we're calling sight words are really the high frequency words. And a lot of them have a lot of different vowel sounds or a lot of them are irregular. So they can't be sounded out. And so we're, te we're trying, we're by, we are by doing practice like that, encouraging the bypassing of the orthographic mapping when it would be better to just have those students do some flashcards with some CBC words and yes. practice that decoding, doing that laborious process, which does feel hard at the beginning for students, but builds that orthographic mapping connections and then they can apply them to more and more words and they're stronger and faster connections every single time they do that. Well, your mention about sight words was good because we should talk about what that means. And you've, I'm sure you've talked about that many times, but that's a very confusing thing for teachers and parents because, and I still sometimes use the word the old way, but I always try to clarify what I'm talking about just because I know that's how people use it. But the, the definition of sight words for many people is words you can't sound out. So we have to memorize them. When researchers cite words are words that you have orthographically mapped. You know them by sight, not because you've memorized it as a whole, but because you've, you've connected all these pieces. So when um, when you look at like the Dolch cite word list and the Fry list, so many, so many, I don't remember, but it's a very large percent of those words can perfectly be sounded out when you know the phonics patterns. So it makes much more sense just to teach them within the font, right? So the word big, the word can, like you don't have to teach those as memorizing, teach them when you've taught short A and short I. Um, when you, there, it's a little more tricky when you get to some of the irregular words and you can get really in the weeds and some people will say no word is really irregular because blah, blah, blah. There's reasons for the spelling and we could get really deep on that. But in general, like when you think about the word the, I mean, I guess you could say it's not technically irregular that we just use the schwa at the end and there's the voice th, but it is irregular for beginning readers and they have to have it if their decodable texts are going to make any sense at all. So I think we can still teach it systematically, potentially at the beginning, you know, we can talk about how these are two letters th. Um, when we look at them, we say the. Mm. When we see this E, we say, uh, like we can still talk about it. Now, will everybody grasp that? No, not necessarily, but some will. And eventually it's going to make sense to them. So, you know, it, it is a disservice to kids. And unfortunately, a lot of teachers are feel the pressure of doing that and have the expectation of doing that, of teaching these large lists of sight words, quote sight words that um, that are taking too much. That's really takes a lot of time away from what would be, we should be spending most of our work on. So that's I'm sympathetic to those teachers and to those parents who feel obligated. Um, yeah, for sure. Well, and I think also, you know, 
our goal is always to make kids fluent. And so if you have memorized sight words, then you sound very fluent um, when you're reading. But um, I think where it really hits the road is can they spell them or can they can they make corrections to their spelling when they reread it? So um, prior to talking um, on air, we were talking about the word was and Shannon said, so um, how do I know if uh, if a kid has mapped was? Well, they recognize it. Is it doesn't mean if they spell it wrong, they haven't orthographically mapped it. And I don't have any scientific research to back this up. So here's my hypothesis. Um, I think that a child who has orthographically mapped W-A-S as was, and then is spelling their word W-U-Z um, in their writing, could actually go back and edit or at least circle and say, oh, was, hmm, I think that this one might be spelled incorrectly. And I think that they could then go back and edit their word because they would know was. Now, would they probably need to see some resources within your classroom to be able to do that? Yes, probably. But um, it, they need to have that recognition that their spelling may need to be adjusted. So I think that um, it that would be different if they are approaching a word when they're reading it and they say, what? as and they have made no connection to a word that they know that sounds like was because that's not an english word that is not orthographically mapped for them so that's i think that's the big difference um, between when you come to a word like that it's just a hypothesis i'd be happy to have some feedback about that if anybody has some research to back it up right we were talking about like if you go from um, speech to print versus print to speech does a student map a word incorrectly? Like if the first time they tried to write was in a story before they'd really started reading it and they wrote it as W-U-Z, did they learn it wrong? Or I was bringing a more advanced um, one up, like I misspelled the word colleague, which is something I have to type a lot because, you know, we write little emails to our colleagues. <laughs> um, and I misspell it every single time, like every single time that it's just one of those words that I cannot spell correctly. I recognize it when I read it every single time. And Mary asked me, well, do you recognize it when spell check fixes it for you or when it underlines it with the squiggly line and then gives you a pop up with some choices? Do you always know which one's correct? And I said, oh, yeah, I always know which one's correct. Mm -hmm. And she said, then you have that word orthographically mapped. And I said, well, why can't I remember how to spell it? And so she we wrote it down and she was saying, do you see that league? You know, she said, first off, do you always know it's C-O-L-L versus like call, like a phone call. And I was like, oh yeah, I always get the C-O-L-L correct. It's the in middle and end that I get wrong. And she said, well, look at it as league, L-E-A-G-U-E, -E, like a league of their own. And so I'm trying to like strengthen an orthographic mapping as this we've having this conversation and I'm metacognitive about my brain mm -hmm. and paying attention to it. And I'm wondering if I can strengthen that connection with, okay, it's stamped as the letters L-E-A-G-U-E. At the end of that word, and if I can remember that sequence better, and then if I pay attention to that, if the next time I try to spell that word, if I can do it more automatically. That is, yeah, it's a lot to think about, and it's a hard question, I think. I recently had someone ask me, how can I help my child, um, or, um, do, how do I do phoneme graphing mapping for Wednesday? Because that is such a tricky Wednesday. word. <laughs> yeah, and I said, I think you should, I think you should probably do sound to spell, and then 
do that for what you're mapping, right? Wed, remember wed nest day and remember how to spell wed nest day versus trying to say, well, I think DN is used to spell N and, you know, it just gets very complicated. So I'm not sure how you would scientifically explain that, but I think there's room for room for sound to spell when you're trying to um, map words because you can remember those sequences in a different way, I guess. That makes sense. Or like together to get her. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, we were talking before the podcast about how we learned how to spell Mississippi. <laughs> and I was saying I'm from Louisiana and I, everybody growing up where I grew up, we learned M-I, crooked letter, crooked letter, I, crooked letter, crooked letter, I, humpback, humpback, I. And we just recite that really fast. <laughs> Mary and Hannah are yes. both from the North and they were like, what? Yeah, no, we didn't. We learned, <laughs> I learned it first backwards and then forwards. So it was I-P-P-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-M. M-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-P-P-I. And so I, you know, it's just one of those kind of like tricky words, but I love this piece of the conversation though, because this leaves room for teachers to give strategies to students to spell tricky words. So this can be a strategy that makes sense to you and you take ownership and then your ownership in this is the way that you would orthographically map and process and also retain. So if we're going to talk about Shannon's process of finding the word colleague, well, we know that Shannon already knows C-O-L as the very beginning of the word colleague, not C-A-L-L. So, okay, I don't need to teach that strategy. So then I broke the word again and I said, well, league sounds familiar to me. Does that make sense? Now that has strengthened within Shannon. I pull back and I allow her brain to figure out the rest of the mapping. So I think that's the other piece too, is that we have to give students the time to actually process and make meaning on their own and have metacognition about the way that best works for them when they spell it. And we can't always teach them every single way. So as a, as a special education teacher and, and an interventionist, I have a whole bag of tricks for teaching kids how to remember words and especially with homophones and things like that. So I'm going to use those um, and I may give a hint to it, but that doesn't mean that that student's going to 1 million percent pick up on it. So, and that's why they need decodable text, right? Because we have to give them that time to apply that knowledge, their phonic knowledge, um, phonetic knowledge to those new novel words. And struggle. Else, and struggle or else they're not going to get orthographically mapped. They're just going to get memorized. And, 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 and there's going to come a point like, and that's why so many readers, struggling readers get stuck at like the end of second grade, early third grade level because their visual memorization knowledge bank is full. Yeah. Right. And they cannot think, build any more words unless they go back and learn now phonics and morphology and build those chunks and those connections so their brain can be more efficient and they can learn like those 30 to 70,000 words. By doing and then it back themselves. when you talk, yeah, when you talked about using decodable books and having to, I think it's, it's good for parents and teachers to remember that different kids are going to have to be exposed to a word different number of times before they map it. And so it doesn't mean it's, it doesn't have to mean that it's not working. It just takes more exposure. I was, um, the other day I was, um, giving a fluency webinar and I had a video of, 
I'm glad I took it because he moved past this very quickly, but of my youngest learning to read, he was five years old and it was a decodable passage. And he, he sounded out Pat three times. He sounded out cat three times. And now he's a very fluent reader, but um, he had to do that. Like it, he, he hadn't mapped those words. He had to work through it. And then his, so he suddenly he had mapped CBC words and we're working on words with blends and in other um, phonics patterns. And it was, a, it was a process. And for him, it, it picked up very quickly and pretty soon he could read almost any word, which um, comes down to David Scher's self-teaching hypothesis, which we were talking about before. And I'm not going to say I'm a real expert on that. I don't talk about it a lot because I think I need to think about it more. But I th- my understanding is that his hypothesis is that most of the words, and this makes sense, most of the words our students read, it's not because we've explicitly taught the word, right? So we don't have to teach every single CVC word for them to be able to read CVC words. But once they understand the phonics patterns, they can apply that to unfamiliar words. And that's why we can sound out really long words that are medical words that we've never seen before because we've understand the parts of the word and can put it together. Um, so that's comforting. We don't have to teach them every word they're ever going to see, but we've got to build this strong foundation so that um, they can orthographically map these patterns. Then I think this is correct. Apply that to other words they find. I'm thinking your example, like medical words, like even if it don't know, if it, if I don't know every single thing, if it has cardio in the front or something, mm-hmm. then I'm going to automatically like attach that to my meaning base. So, okay. It's something to do with the heart. Okay. Let me read yeah. on and see what this specific word actually means. Maybe I can use syntax to figure out if it's a noun or a verb or an adjective. And then maybe I can use context clues to figure out really more information about it. But I have some morphological knowledge and then also the phonetic knowledge to be able to send out this word completely. And then start to make those connections. And then I will build that word more completely as part of my lexicon. Yes. Um, through the through that that that's 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 like us as adults going through the orthographic mapping process mm-hmm. when we see a big word and we don't know and we've got to we almost we have to figure out the pronunciation and the meaning at the same time yeah that's a good point too because orthographic mapping isn't just for little kids right it's for anybody mm-hmm. who is reading an unfamiliar word that they have to learn and and for us usually it's those really long words um but then once and that's so interesting about orthographic mapping is that once you're good at it David Kilpatrick says, you only need to see a word like one to four times. And then you just, for us, it's maybe just once or twice. And then you know it. And it's just like the word mm-hmm. pops out and you can read it, um, which is very interesting. And he's, I love how he talks about how we forget other things, right? Like you forget somebody's name. You for, you have mm-hmm. to, I think that's so interesting sometimes where you have to, um, when we had something with that with our family recently, I don't remember the situation, but I was trying to remember the, the name of a couple, I think. Yeah, that I knew way back when I was in high school. And let me think about it. And I sat and sat and sat, and then I finally pulled it out, which is so interesting how that you can do that. But that's words aren't like that. You, like you don't look at it and say, let me think for a while. I know I know this word. You just, it pops. So it, it's a very different process than learning other things, which is very interesting. Well, and it's interesting, like if you learn a new language, okay, like I've learned French and I already have the meanings of these words. Um, and I actually, I already know the alphabet because they use the same alphabet as ours, but it's a different sequence of letters. And it's also mm-hmm. a, a couple of new sounds some of the mm-hmm. same sounds and some different sounds. But once I learned this, how the sounds and those letters are connected and I have that phoneme grapheme connection in French, all of a sudden those words get popped on the page. And then now I have, I have the letterbox C-A-T and C-H-A-T for cat mm-hmm. as oh. chat and cat, you know? And so, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, it's, <laughs> Um, and so it, it's very, it's, it's almost like cat. It's just uh, C-H-A-T. So 
I have two different letter boxes Interesting. with those connections, but that pronunciation and the pronunciations, it's kind of going to a different pronunciation, but it's going to the same meaning place in my brain. Yeah. That's very interesting to think about. It's not I, like I I'm thinking really of a French that. cat versus an American cat yeah. or an English cat. It's still going to my knowledge of cat. Um, yeah, I've just interesting. gotten more letter boxes, but then if, but then if I had to learn like a new character system, then I would have to learn new characters with more visual symbols, more pronunciations, but then could still connect those to that meaning that I've already got in my brain. I don't want to go too off track, but I really want to like mention this because a lot of people have a misunderstanding about why kids with dyslexia can't, can't or have difficulty with a foreign language. And um, a Mm. big piece of that is actually the phonological awareness. Mm -hmm. It's being able to manipulate the sounds within other languages so that you can put them in the correct order. So sometimes when you meet a a child who has dyslexia, they may say biscotti instead of spaghetti, right? So that's like a common misconception. And of course, we all think it's super adorable and all this stuff, but they have um, misconceptions put the miss the language piece of it. And so the language piece we know is innate. And so um, if it is not innate and you are learning a new language, you are manipulating the sounds to create new meaning. And for if if there is a process within that that's weak, it may make it more difficult. So I am a person with weak phonological awareness. And if I see the letters in a foreign language, I may be able to map them better, but it is very difficult for me to remember and keep that sequence within my brain of the sounds that go together if somebody is just speaking to me about it. It's really interesting. interesting. And I have good knowledge of that. And I remember like very clearly in my high school Spanish class being like, oh, the LL is like a Y. And the second I got that, like a and Amarillo and all these other things like made sense <laughs> to me. And I was able to connect the Y sound in English with the, with the sound with the Y symbol in English and the LL symbol in Spanish and be able to spell both of those words in English with the sound. I could spell the words if they were Spanish with that choice or in English with that choice. And then also to decode, I was able mm-hmm. to, to recorrect with those sounds. I know we're going off on a little bit of a tangent, I know. but I think we're talking <laughs> about what you said with share with, it gets to a point where students, first off, we cannot do this orthographic mapping for the students. We've said that. And so we have to have them read. And then the older they get and the further they get along in the decoding journey, the more words they are building themselves and orthographically mapping themselves. They are already in their brains with their pronunciation, hopefully their meaning, although students do encounter words that they've never seen before and have to figure out the meaning of those from a context um, or by uh, explicit vocabulary teaching as well. But they're just going to have to have tons of reading experiences to be able to put all of these words in their minds. We cannot explicitly teach every single word in English. Right. And when we talk about lots of reading experience, I think it's good to remember that for those early years, it's a lot of time in decodable text. It's And it's not just, you know, it doesn't have to be a decodable book. It can be decodable sentences. It can be, you know, things on the, on the board, word lists, but just lots and lots of time with that. And then as they start mapping many, many words, it's the wide reading that comes into play where they just need a lot of practice reading books, um, which 
can, you know, for some kids that can be pretty early for others. It's maybe a little bit longer, but they need to be reading something for that process to move forward. And I guess, so if we want to make the most of our classroom time or the most of our intervention time, then what practices should we try to avoid and what should we replace with? (laughs) What do you think? Yeah, those are good questions. So for number one, we know that for beginning readers, they should not be reading the predictable leveled books because the reading should be in quotes there. Um, We know from the simple view of reading that it's um, word recognition through decoding, primarily also mapping words, but you know, you have to actually sound out the words and then understand them for reading comprehension to occur. So if they're getting at the word a different way through the picture, through the context, through one letter in the picture, which is what I used to teach, um, they're not really reading the words. So the reading comprehension is not real because they haven't read. So we want to have them be actually reading decodable books where, where primarily the words can be sounded out. It's okay to put irregular words in there. Um, that's fine because we want it to sound like language, but they just need a lot of practice with actual decoding. And then we want to avoid anything that promotes learning words as a shape. So I think a popular activity has been having the boxes where around the letters so that you can say, oh, the word the has two tall letters and a short letter, but lots of words would fit in the box like that. And because we understand that word learning is connecting sounds to letters and not memorizing a shape, that's really a waste of time. And if it was all caps, it would be a moot point. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> or in cursive or something or yeah. whatever. Yeah. So I, just yeah. Work- oh, go I ahead, was just going to say, I just want to say, so just to reiterate, what we want kids to do is have meaningful reading opportunities. And we want them to be reading words that have already explicitly been taught and that they have been exposed to so well, the sound they patterns can... they've been taught but not ex- necessarily the words they've been taught right so that they can go through the struggle mm-hmm. of actually mapping it or stamping it as sometimes shannon says on on their brain to create absolutely. those neurological pathways yeah absolutely and does orthographic mapping happen in just like short one syllable words is it a letter sequence is it a pattern like do we map the at pattern versus cat is it and then also like what happens with like morphine pieces and things like that like what can the brain actually map so my understanding is that it's pieces and words i'm i'm i hope i have that right in the letterbox um, yeah about. right because um I, I know david kilpatrick talks about word families i haven't studied that a lot there's um there's a big discussions in the science of reading community about whether we should do word families because it in the past, and I can count myself here, they were used as a way to teach beginning reading, but really kids were just substituting the first letter. They really weren't reading all the way through. But at the same time, mapping those families can also be helpful. So I'm I'm on the fence about that one. Um, but I think I think it's all of it, it's all of the above. Okay. I think so too. And I, I'm looking at my Kilpatrick book because you all know how much I uh, have studied it too. But um, you know, what we're looking for are meaningful letter strings. It yes. has to be meaningful letter strings. So that could be um, that, you know, E-I-G-H makes the sound A, like in neighbor and um, and eight. And those are key words that you already have within your, you know, memory. And those are meaningful to you because you have keywords associated with them. So there's that. Um, and then I've also used this as an example too for um, adults. So if you're living in the United States and I say NHL, 
um, you're probably thinking National Hockey League. Those um, that acronym is a meaningful string of letters to me because I know different NHL teams here in the U.S. Like my husband loves the Pittsburgh Penguins, and so you know, like we talk about that sometimes. So for orthographic mapping, it has to be meaningful. I'm not going to think of like the National Health League. That's not something that um, is meaningful. I've never heard those words before, but NHL is. So that's going to pop off the page for me. That's going to be something that I have connected the letter string. I don't say N-H-L, I say N-H-L because I'm reading that word with the letters. So that's how we would say it in language. And so that language connects into my brain. I process it and I'm reading it that way. Hopefully that 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 helps a little bit. That's a very good explanation of that process because we were talking before and I was a little struggling on that, how acronyms work with orthographic mapping, but just how you talk about how the, the phone, the sounds that you're connecting are the letter names, which makes perfect sense because that's how we read that word or that acronym, I should say. And then Mary, you brought up a second ago, um, homophones and homographs. And so like, I'm thinking, let's say a homograph first, like bat. Okay. Um, and so when I see BAT, um, I am going to need the, first off, if I see it in isolation, I guess, whichever one I'm more familiar with, I might picture a baseball bat or I might picture a flying mammal <laughs> or I might picture mm-hmm. the action of it or something. I don't know. There's so many means of bat, but, um, but then in the context, so, but I have the same pronunciation and I have the same visual connection and they're connected to two different meanings in my brain. But it doesn't necessarily matter if you're only looking at the word in isolation because you, you associate B-A-T as a word you are familiar with, mm-hmm. period. So it's something that you recognize and know, then you would need to have the context to give you whether it's an animal who flies in the sky or whether it's a, a tool that you use as you're playing baseball. Okay. And then now let's think about bow and bow mm-hmm. because those have different pronunciations. So it's the same. So you still recognize it as a word that you have read before or that you have seen before. Or if somebody is reading that to you and you are looking at the letters, you would know bow. You may you need to have your students develop the cognitive flexibility to try both of those sounds. And so um, if I'm reading words in isolation with a student and we're doing all O W long O sounds, so snow, bow, low, and he reads snow, bow, low. I would say, hmm, does that fit the pattern that we're working on right now? No, but there is a word um, that that means that, but that's not what we're talking about right now. And then you move on, right? So, mm-hmm. so you want to have that cognitive flexibility. If they're reading a word within context and they say um, the bow of the ship um, and you say, oh, hold on one second. I do know that a ship has that word in it, but that's not the pronunciation I usually hear. I think it's the bow of a ship. Um, You have now given them another strategy to try so that they can use that cognitive flexibility to try to read those words. Can I hypothesize too and say that you would have to have that orthographic mapping in order to do that? Because if a student only memorized B-O-W, 
as a word shape or as a memorized piece, would they have that flexibility to give two pronunciations to it? That's a good point. Yeah. Do you see what I'm saying? Because we were talking about that bypassing the pronunciation part earlier in the conversation. Like they maybe couldn't do heteronyms if they yeah. didn't have that connection. Heteronyms are words that are spelled the same, but sound different, like perfect or perfect mm -hmm. and something. And so they have to, we have to have that cognitive flexibility and that, that shows orthographic mapping. Cause if we, if we bypass the pronunciation, they're not going to have the flexibility to do that. Sorry, I'm just thinking out loud. I know. I no, this is really good. I could, I could talk about <laughs> orthographic mapping all day long. It's funny because I, I, it used to be really, um, uh, I, sort of how we kind of alluded to this, Anna, was um, it used to be such a hard concept to try to understand. But the deeper you think about it um, and the more you let go of yourself as an adult reader and you try to put... Uh, you try to hypothesize what your reader's brain processes are. I, I think that it really gives you a little bit more autonomy to try these different strategies and to do some really deep thinking and observations about what your students are doing as they approach words. And I think that's the key. That's what what I was really missing when um, when I was learning to teach struggling readers. I really, I needed to understand how is their brain processing this? And um, you know, uh, if, if you've been listening to the very first and second episodes, um, of Emily Hanford's, um, and sold a story, she, she, um, uh, speaks of a woman who, um, hypothesized, but she didn't have the brain science to really understand how children learn to right. read. And right. that's how the three cueing system kind of came to be. And so, um, you know, if we can relearn to observe our students and use the scientific backing to try to make um, some understandings of how they're processing, I think that goes a long way. And that gives us a lot of credibility as professionals, as we all are. Nobody goes into teaching who doesn't want to help kids be successful. Because helping, mm -hmm. understanding this gives us the words that when we're helping a student, now we know which prompts to use and which prompts not to use to tell the students when they encounter an unfamiliar word. Like um, in Emily Hanford's series, the Fountains of Banal and their level of literacy initiative is getting a lot of slack. And um, in that program, there's like two very big spiral bound prompting guides um, mm -hmm. for teachers to um, when they're observing students reading. And when you understand this process of orthographic mapping and understanding the connections between the visual meaning and pronunciation, you can now look at that prompting guide and know which ones are not the prompts to use. Which is and, pretty much almost all of them because yeah. all we really need is let's look at the letters and put them together. Yes. Yeah. So, cause now we want to tell, we're not going to tell students just look at the first letter and then try to guess one or just look at the picture. We're going to say, look for a chunk that you know and then sound out the whole word from beginning to end look at the all the letters together do you see a meaning piece you know we're going to be we're just going to approach that a different way yep um how should we we talked about um like high frequency words and like okay let's not just give 100 flashcards 
and ask the parents to work on them with the with the children or let's not have a pair pro or somebody or the teacher do that how should we approach high frequency words right so um, we talked earlier about teaching high frequency words within the context of the phonics pattern as much as possible we definitely don't need to teach cbc words as as you know words to memorize just teach them to sound them out when we have those irregular words i think it's good to do the phoneme graphing mapping we hear, we hear a lot about where you count the sounds so like for the word um let's say the word have let's say the sounds of the word have ah, okay let's spell all those sounds and then you can just tell them there's this extra e at the end because we don't end words with a v or you know we just we just explain the the unfamiliar part said is the most common example we say the three sounds we talk about how in the middle we're going to use ai instead of um because that's just how we spell it you could get deeper you could say you could talk about um, pay and paid and lay and yeah, laid yeah you could certainly do that but it, when you're very first starting out, I think it's okay to keep it very simple. Yeah, I totally agree. And that's that heart word strategy. We can link to um, some yes. resources about that, um, especially UFLI has um, just put out all of the heart words. Oh, good, good. Yeah. Um, so I, I have to, uh, here's what I would like to share. I think mm -hmm. that this has been, um, especially on our part to Shannon and, and led by Anna, like the honest questioning and trying to understand and unpacking what is orthographic mapping. And I think that it is a-okay to start um, having conversations like this. And if you feel a little intimidated by um, some of the posts that come out, um, uh, you know, on the Facebook pages, um, find your community and start kind of just chatting about it. Like, I think that once teachers are, are willing to be a bit vulnerable about what they know and what they don't know and what their observations are and what they, I think that this is the approach. This is how we're going to make sure that teachers start um, teaching it this way. We're not going to be sending teachers back to college. That's not going to be happening. We do want to make a change in the way that reading is um, taught explicitly in schools. And to do that, we're going to need a lot of professional development and some professional development is better than others. But I think it really starts with allowing a safe place to start questioning and asking and um, just revising and reviewing. It doesn't mean throwing everything out. It doesn't mean starting over again. It's really taking kind of this like closer view of what what are these processes that kids are going through and how complicated is teaching reading? Well, and we we purposely put this episode following the Reading Brain episode and then in front of the simple view of reading because we do, we want... Um, our listeners and teachers to understand and parents understand that orthographic mapping is not a curriculum. <laughs> it's not a strategy. It's not a method. It's a process. I mean, you're not going to say, hey, class, today we're working on orthographic mapping, you know, or here's a cute orthographic mapping curriculum to buy on teachers. Mm -hmm. There's none of that that's ever going to exist. This is, we are trying to understand an invisible process that happens in the brain. Yes. Um, and through brain imaging, actually, uh, we're in uh, in the show notes. We're going to link to Dahani's um, YouTube video. He actually does show the orthographic mapping and sort of those different areas of the brain lighting up with mm -hmm, the, mm -hmm. with the, you know when the reader sees um, that familiar letter sequence. But um, so it's not quite as invisible, but it's invisible without an MRI machine. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and so we're just trying to understand this process so that we can. You choose the right instructional activities, um, evaluate our reading curriculum, 
give students the correct reading opportunities to have them do this on their own. Because this is, I've always tell students, like, I can't just unscrew their brain and like pour everything I know into it. It would make it much easier, my job, if I could do that. But we can't, they have to build knowledge on their own. And orthographic mapping is that building those sound symbol meaning connections on their own. And we have to really, as teacher, reading teachers, understand how that happens and how to make that happen to really help our readers develop. Well said. Yep. Is there anything okay. we need to think about in terms of spelling um, with the understanding of orthographic mapping? I guess, Mary, we, we brought this a little bit up where like I understand how to read colleague, but don't always spell it correctly, but I'm trying to. I feel like I'm not in a good position to talk about that yet because that is kind of one of my next big things is to really look into spelling. Um, you know, I talked before about say to spell where you can um, say the way the word looks and then write it down. And that like, you can work for a lot of different words, work, a lot of different words. Um, but like the word. Um... Well, we brought up together in Mississippi. And yes, there you go. There you go. Um, and the word Wednesday, Wednesday uh -huh. or February. With the R. Yeah, I got that wrong in a fourth grade reading. Uh, spelling bee. I didn't even know up until that time. I really had no clue there was an R in February. That was such a surprise. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think, and and just of course the practice of dictation, you know, encoding, decoding, you know, how all that fits into orthographic mapping. I can't, I don't feel like I can say with confidence yet, but um, it's all connected. Yeah. And I think that the answer really is a meaningful practice opportunities and multiple practice opportunities and really being understanding of the fact that some kids need a lot more practice than others and um, figuring out how to move move past that. This has been such a big talk. I know we could keep talking for hours <laughs> and hours, but is there anything else that you want to share with our reading teachers about what we have and especially like while you're on the air right now? I feel like we've covered it. Um, I didn't know I could talk this long about orthographic mapping. <laughs> there's a lot, there's a lot to know. I think there's some really good YouTube videos about it that people might want to check out. Lynn Stone, L-Y-N Stone has a really short explainer. Um, anything by David Kilpatrick is good. There's also a two-part video, which um, it breaks down Kilpatrick's book talking about this. I think it's, I think it's something like Mrs. Jane's tutoring services or something like that. It's very, very good. And she's got like moving um, like it's like a cartoon. So it's very easy to follow. I've watched that many times. Um, so just keep reading about it. But I think watching the videos about it is very helpful. And it, eventually it will all just click. And then it makes so much sense. And then it, it really changes how you approach teaching reading. And that's why I think it's so important to understand. And let's just end with um, a challenge to everybody listening. Please give your students time to read so yeah. that they can do this on their own. And that the more we talk about reading, but then don't give the students time to read, mm -hmm. the less the orthographic mapping is going to happen. Yeah. And then just remember with those beginning readers, it could just be reading a short sentence and a short mm -hmm. decodable sentence. Like that's powerful. And put those in as many times as you can during the day. Right. We don't want to give them like, okay, a beginning reader here, go read Harry Potter because they're just, they're just flipping pages. They're not actually making those sound symbol connections, but give them opportunities for the sound symbol connections that you have taught them so yeah. far mm -hmm. for sure 
Well, I um, am going to give you a plug because um, this is so exciting. I love your um, your Measured Mom Plus um, membership opportunity. It is such a great way to get great resources. And right now on your website, um, if you share your email address, you can get a pre-K sample, first, second, third um, grade sample. And um, you have such high quality resources. I really love that it's easy to just print or you can use it on your digital platforms. It's really, I have to commend you because I love the resources that you share and you have always made them very available to um, families and teachers. So um, I'm excited because my new, my next year, um, I am reinvesting in some new resources and yours are totally at the top of my list. So um, if you you are on the lookout, please go to the Measured Mom and look into joining the Measured Mom Plus membership. Thank you very much. Yeah, we have, um, I think it's it's close to 2000 printables there and we add about 30 a month. So I work with my team of, they're all um, they're all moms, but they're all uh, have degrees in education and some are homeschooling. So they're very experienced with education as well. And um, it's wonderful to work with them. And we've, we've recently added a new fluency section where we have fluency pyramids, fluency poems, um, plus just a ton of, of materials for every phonics pattern. So, and we're, we're just constantly growing. And we also like our members to make suggestions. And if what they suggest is a good fit, we like to add it. So um, yeah, those free resources are on the website. And then also if anyone wants to email me personally, I, I try to answer all my emails. Um, so that's hello at the measured mom.com. Yeah, this is, uh, thank you so much for sharing um, information with us and just having this conversation. It's nice to just welcome you into our our talking space and and being a think partner. And I, I really do hope that more people um, can find think partners like this too, to just kind of hash it out. It's important. Makes you a thank better you. teacher. Thank, thank you. And thanks for all that you two are doing with your podcast and everything else. Mm-hmm. Oh, and we need to also talk about your podcast too, the Triple R um uh, reading teaching podcast. We yeah, can, so how tri- can they find you? Yeah, so Triple R Teaching stands for Reflect, Refine, Recharge, um, and it I I created it as a way to just help teachers think about what they're doing and then maybe make some little changes. So most of the episodes are solo episodes and they're very short, um, five to ten minutes. Um, I did do a series this last summer interviewing teachers who transitioned from balance to structured literacy, and that was really good. And I started to do some more longer interviews as well. But I think um, if you're looking for something quick that you can take away something from, that would be a good one to add to your playlist. And um, we'll have to get you ladies. (laughs) We'll have to get you on my podcast for sure. (laughs) And we'll probably have to cut it off at some point because I know we can talk all day long. (laughs) Our long-term listeners know our episodes are not quick. (laughs) But thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you.